Good evening. We're in John's Gospel, and we're in chapter 2. And we're coming up to the first miracle of Jesus. And we're just going to cover the first 11 verses. We'll go to 12, maybe. When you think of a miracle... And you think Jesus is now starting his public declaration and ministry. And he's going to start with something. If you were Jesus, and we're all thankful you're not, but if you were, or if you knew someone who was, even if you could advise Jesus, here's how you should start. What would be the miracle you would come up with? You know, maybe it'd be, let's start off with a bang. Raise someone from the dead. You'd start that way, and man, the press is going to be there. You will have a following now. Or you could feed thousands. That would work. Or heal a leper. That would work. Or a blind guy. Take your pick. Either one. We're all for that. But the miracle that Jesus starts out with isn't any of those things. And you know what it is, because it says there right at the top of the passage, it says Jesus changed water into wine. So you already know what's happening. It's a spoiler. They shouldn't put those little things at the top. But understand this, that each of the miracles in John's gospel become occasions for debate about the meaning and purpose of Jesus in relationship to the law and now establishing grace. And so when John writes, he's going to give us a miracle and it's not just, hey, by the way, Jesus did this. Okay, let's talk about this. He's, He's starting this conversation to begin a thought process in our minds that's very important. And this is probably one of the most important to launch us into understanding what is going to be taking place throughout this gospel, throughout this book, and throughout the things that Jesus does. And so let's read it together, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water so that they are filled to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. When Jesus, 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Little backdrop. A wedding at this time, a Jewish wedding, wasn't like our weddings today. You get an invitation, you RSVP, you go there and it's going to last a few hours. There's going to be the ceremony and then there's going to be the reception afterwards and you'll eat and spend some time there and then you go home. The, the way the weddings work there is they actually were married beforehand. Then they would travel through the city in celebration that the fact that they are married and they would take the long way so that everyone knew And everyone could congratulate them and everyone celebrate with them. And then they would go to the home, the place where they were going to finally meet. And then they would stay there and they would party for about a week. They would enjoy the food. They would enjoy the wine, the time of celebration. Some might leave and come back, but it was a week-long festivity. And in a time when there was a lot of poverty, these were big occasions. If you get an invitation, if you're part of a wedding, you are there. And it's a great thing. And so this is a huge celebration to run out of wine. And we don't know when in the celebration this was. Was it the first day, second? We don't know. But they did run out of wine. That would be a terrible thing. That would be, oh my gosh, They're out of wine. People would talk about that for months, perhaps years. Oh, yeah. There's Joe. Remember his wedding? Yeah, they ran out of wine. I know it. He just... And so it would be a stigma. It would be a shame to the family. And so it was a big deal. Now, John tells us at the end of his book that all this was done, all these things were written so that we could know that Jesus is the Christ. That everything he talks about was to help us know that Jesus is indeed the Christ. So why is he doing this? And before I delve into it, I wish I had my whiteboard here because I'd I'd like to find out some questions that you have and some thoughts that you have. And the first, let me ask you, what questions do you have? And I can maybe jot them down so I can remember. Any questions you have just about this passage? No questions at all. Yes, Law. (laughs) Nope, nope, too late. So what were the jars for? Okay. I'm writing it down. I'll get to it. Any other questions? Yeah, Tim. Why the wedding? What do you think? Kind of like a prophetic, the bridegroom, the kingdom of God kind of a thing. Okay. So what would the question be? Does Mary know the plan? Yeah, why didn't you just fill it up? Why did it have to be water first? Is some chemistry thing going on there? Okay. Here's an idea. You know, if people are like me in regards to that, I'm skeptical. Wine was probably in there already. But if it's filled to the brim with water, 
there's no room for wine to be added. Possibly. Just, okay, it's got a bunch of water in it. Okay. We'll cover some of this a little bit more. Good. Any other questions? It's not wine. Why would you think it's not wine? And so, uh, but it would be, would be a miracle if it wasn't wine, if it was just water. Like wine or wine? Like wine. It's like wine. Wine light. Well, well, let's talk about this for a while. Does anyone have a problem with Jesus making wine? Oh, yeah, you say no, because it's Jesus. You have to say no. If, if I made wine and had 120 to 180 gallons of wine, would you have a problem with me making 180 gallons of wine? Anyone here? You're, you're having a problem with me. I would, too, because I don't know how to make wine. It would be terrible. (laughs) But are you now being influenced by how you feel about alcohol and portraying it into what you're thinking? It's fermented, okay? To what extent, we don't know. Some of the wine would be more diluted for economic reasons, but it was fermented. It was alcoholic. Um, drinking and drunkenness were prevalent back then, just like they are today. So it's not like, well, you know, things are different today. It's like, no, they were the same thing. And that's why he says when people have well drunk, then you bring out the bad stuff because they don't know. Why don't they know? Because they're inebriated. Okay? They're, they're already hammered. Maybe not hammered, but they're, you know... Tapped, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. They're, they're, they're buzzed. And so when they've got the buzz, they're not going to notice the degradation of the wine. And so you can fool them. Yeah, then you bring out the low content stuff. Okay. I just want you to think about the conversations that you're having right now regarding this miracle. It's amazing because I was reading through a number of commentaries and listening to different people, and no one really wanted to tackle just that Jesus made an alcoholic beverage. And they just kind of said, yeah, he made wine, and then let's keep moving on because some people just have a hard time with that. There are some people who will go so far to say, well, it wasn't alcoholic at all. It was just, you know, unfermented grapes, but... That's not what wine is. Okay, yeah, that's grape juice. So, any other questions? You have a mother. You know why. (laughs) 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 Okay. (laughs) Okay, what was that whole conversation about? Any other thoughts just on this? What is significant about turning water to wine? Besides, that's you a know, pretty cool thing to be able to do. What is significant? Why, why is this important? Why is it, as he says later on in what, um, verse 11... This was the first sign of many signs which he revealed his glory. How is this a sign 
that reveals his glory. And what does that mean, his glory? Tim. Well, I think we need to take the event at itself. We, we need to be careful not to make the meaning of this passage dependent on another passage. Okay? Uh, otherwise, we can lose, I think, really what's taking place. I, I know I was listening to one commentator, and boy, I don't know how I ended up in the book of Revelation. And, you know, all of a sudden I was like, huh? How did I get here? But we need to kind of deal with this, but it doesn't mean that those things aren't related. But something is happening here that is a sign. And the word glory is the word Ichabod. It means weight, substance. Something of substance is taking place here. For sure, it's partly that he's done something miraculous. You see, a miracle isn't just a coincidence that something great happened. You know, I got the front row parking at Target. It's a miracle. You know, no, that that was just fortunate. A miracle is something that's naturally unable to happen, happening. Okay? Water becoming wine, fermenting immediately. That's a miracle. Usually it takes time. I've been to Napa. I've seen the vats. I I know the process, you know. And so, don't you wonder if it was good wine? Don't you want? Anyway, Lola. So a sign just showing what he is going to be doing, changing and bring starting the covenant. You don't put old wine into new wine skins. You take new wine so that it doesn't burst. Something new has to be contained, something unique. So something new transformational is taking place. Okay. But not everyone knew. Notice it was done secretly. Remember? The the servants knew, but not even the guy who was at the feast, the special guest, didn't know. Only the servants who drew the water and his disciples. So it was on the down low. (laughs) Just warming up. (laughs) First, I'm going to make water into wine. Next, I'm going to pull a rabbit out of my hat. Um, I don't think so. I don't think it's practice. Because many of the miracles Jesus did, he would tell the person who was blind, see that you tell no one. Okay. He, he wasn't out to make a big presentation. He didn't trust how people would respond in these things. And, and so... The fact that this takes place at a wedding, at a party, because that's what it was. It was a wedding party. Again, get the idea of a, a, you know, just a quiet ceremony. I mean, have more in your mind the, you know, after the wedding ceremony is done and you've got the dancing going on and you've got the DJ playing and the music's happening. Think of that going on, okay? This is festive. This is a celebration. This is a wedding festival party. The fact that Jesus starts at a party to me is exciting. I, I love that that's what begins. 
it is a wedding as well, and there's significance in the wedding. You know, we talked about the importance of this whole bridegroom bride that could take place. But really what he's doing is coming to a festivity, a celebration, and that's where God shows up, is in this festivity. It's not in the synagogue. It's not in the church building. It's among the people in celebration. Because something is to be celebrated that's taking place. And this is the perfect place to bring it out. This is the perfect place to start is at this place of celebration. And so it's fitting that it begins here. And when... The wine runs out in Jesus' mother. It's interesting because Mary is never named in John's gospel and neither is John. Neither one of them are ever named with their names. But we see him mention her to her, mention of her, and when she says they have no more wine, the word woman is not a derogatory one. It's not like woman, what are you doing? It's actually the same word that he uses. In chapter 19, when Jesus saw his mother and John, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And so it's an endearing term. It's not disrespectful in any way. And when he says, my hour has not come, there's a couple of thoughts in this, and they could actually be linked together. One is definitely the hour talking about the cross, Okay, but there's also the hour of revealing to everyone that I am the Messiah. And so both of those things kind of show up through the gospel. In chapter 7, I think it is, 6 or 7 in John's gospel, there's that conversation about the hour coming. And then we definitely have later on near the cross that hour you know, that he's come for a specific purpose. And so there is definitely a point, but he's not coming right. It's like, I'm not here to make myself known to everybody. But then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. By this time, Jesus is now out of the house. He's probably been out of the house for some time. There's no mention of Joseph. Joseph very well may be dead. By this point in time, Jesus had younger brothers and sisters. So when they're of age and probably able to take care of things, it's now time he can move out of the house. So Mary has in her mind, okay, I know what happened. I was there. Okay. I was a virgin and I conceived a son. It was one of those things you don't forget. But no one has believed me. For all these years, Mary has had a stigma over her. And now Jesus is here. He's got some guys with him, some disciples. Okay, now? Just letting you know, Jesus. And I think this is interesting because you moms know how you can Drop hints. And you're not really forcing the issue, but you're putting the issue out there. I mean, moms aren't the only ones that do it, but moms do it well. 
And so Mary's thinking, okay, he's got some disciples following him now. And, you know, I know she's probably heard about what happened with John down at the water. And now these people are following Jesus. And so maybe this is the time. And, hey, this is a good occasion. Now, Jesus was invited. Mary is one who's able to speak into this and tell the servants to do this. So she's connected to the wedding somehow. We don't know how, but maybe, just maybe, this is the time where Jesus can start showing up. And Jesus kind of says, Mom, you know, your time and my time aren't necessarily the right and exact time. In other words, I have a plan, and it might not exactly be your plan. But also, like a mom, she's very intuitive, and she does have it right. Whatever he says, do it. Do you have a question? We see throughout the Gospels, there are times where the Pharisees are are dialoguing with Jesus. We know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. We don't know who your father is. Those kinds of comments take place. Well, there's a, a... it's kind of putting it out there in a derogatory way, okay? And people did know because Joseph was betrothed to her and then she shows up pregnant, people would know and people would talk. And so, you know, there was that definitely that went along. She didn't just um, all of a sudden become pregnant and then everyone's like, wait a second, you and Joseph aren't married yet, right? Or you haven't consummated your marriage yet. And so there are some dialogues in scripture that suggest that, you know, he is not born of a legitimate means. The Pharisees say that a few times. And so how did they get that information? It was probably out there. No, yeah, we do see it throughout the scripture that there's that inference. And so now Jesus does come out there and she says, hey, the time has come. And then the last words that we have recorded of Mary are interesting. Do whatever he tells you. I think that's cool. You know, and especially from those maybe in the Catholic faith, you know, who esteem Mary, her last words were do whatever he says. And I think that's good advice to to think what did Mary say? Well, she said, do whatever he says. And this is the last time we have anything recorded of her speaking. And so she says, do whatever he says. And then the stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews of ceremonial washing. This is really important. This is spoken of for a reason. The reason John says ceremonial washing is because he's trying to paint a picture here. Now, the ceremonial washing would take place when uh, people would come. They would want to wash their feet because it was dirt and they just had sandals. But they'd also want to wash their hands. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, it wasn't that they just didn't wash their hands. This was a ceremonial washing. And this isn't something that is in the law. This is the tradition of the elders. This is a religious tradition that has been put on by the religious leaders. And Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God? 
for the sake of your tradition. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. And then he goes on and and he quotes Isaiah. And so what Jesus is saying, you have this tradition, but your tradition violates the heart of God. And he gives an example. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. That means take care of them. But you take what you have of your resources and you say, oh, it's dedicated to God, so I don't have to be responsible for my father or my mother because it belongs to God. But then you get to still enjoy it. You hypocrites. And so he calls them on something, but the ceremonial washing was part of their religious duties, and it was a big deal to them, so big that they challenged Jesus and his disciples. And so here are these water jars that are used for this kind of ceremonial washing. They would pour the water on one hand, and they'd clean the hand, and then they'd pour it on the other hand, they'd rub the hands together, and it was a ceremony that they were supposed to do. The really religious people would do it before dinner, and then they'd even do it before the next course. They were just constantly, yes, I am ceremonial clean. I'm doing my religious tradition. And so Jesus says, fill the ceremony up to the brim and I'm going to change it. I'm going to take your ceremony and I'm going to make it now alive and living. Because Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it to the full. And so there's a lot of significance with these ceremonial jars and what they represent and what Jesus is now doing. I'm going to get rid of that old tradition and I'm going to bring wine to the party. I'm going to bring life. I'm going to bring joy. I am going to change everything. And it's real important that we see that throughout John's gospel, he's constantly, it's a constant reoccurring theme, this contrast to the law and now this new. And here it begins with their ceremony. What do we wash our hands with now? Don't know, but there's plenty of wine. And there is more than enough wine to last the week. And there is more than enough of God's grace to fill our lives. And you could clean your hands and wash your hands and never really be clean. But God can do a transformational work and change and bring life. And so that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so he has them fill the jars to the brim, and then they draw it out, they go there, and they see what's going on. And he is making a statement. He's letting them know something is happening. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, it says, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, which is sweet wine, 
and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so here in Nehemiah, when they start recognizing again the the words that God had given to the people of Israel, Nehemiah says, don't mourn. This isn't an occasion for sadness. No, now go get some wine and rejoice. When's the last time your pastor told you, hey, guys, go get some wine, have a good night? We're done. Uh, What's this about? There is a reason to celebrate, and wine is connected to joy throughout the scripture. In fact, the priests would say, if there is no wine, there is no joy. It was a common statement at that time. If without wine, you can't have any joy. Now, to address the alcohol problem, okay? Alcohol abuse took place then as it does now. And it's not like, well, okay, then let's just make grape juice. You see, changing the law doesn't change the heart. And what needs to happen is people need to be responsible. Have a glass, but don't have two bottles. Drink, but be responsible. Because back then, it was shameful to be drunk just as it is now. I know there's time where I've been in a situation, maybe a wedding or another uh, event, and someone is intoxicated. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, buddy, you know, hey, hey, settle down, settle down. No, I I don't want a piggyback ride right now. Thank you. You know, it's just, you, you just kind of, and all of a sudden, it's like, man, that's, you're out of control here. Okay, and then, you know, the next day, they wake up, and they're like, did I offer you a piggyback ride? Yes, you did, man. You didn't take it, did you? No, thank you. But, you know, and it's there's still that feeling of, of shame. Well, you have to be responsible for that, okay? But God doesn't stop making wine because you don't have self-control. Because if it wasn't wine, it would be something else. And if it wasn't something else, it'd be something else still. What has to change is the character, but that's what he's getting to. If God can get a hold of us and and transform us and give his life to us, then it can affect the way we live. Have you ever been to a place where you see someone and, and it seems like, man, you know, they like singing and they seem to like praying and they like reading. I wish I could do that, but I, I just can't. And and it feels like it's another life over there somewhere. And I just, you know, I just don't like those things. I just don't do those things. And it's so foreign to me that I really, I can't relate to those things. And it's in vain to try and force yourself just to do things, to try and become a different person. But what God wants to do is take what's in you 
and make it into something new. And change who you are. And it might even come to a surprise to you. I can remember when I I stopped wanting to do certain things. And I remember saying no to someone when I never said no. You got some, and it's free? Yes. Yes, please. And then I said, no, thank you. And I remember thinking, did I just say no? Did I just pass up? I'm not telling you all the stuff I did. This stuff? And I remember almost weeping because I thought, something's going on. Something's changing in me. I'm becoming someone different, and it's not me doing it. And I started to care about things that I didn't care about. And I started to change the things that I'd once cared about. And they became distant to me and other things became new. And see, this religious ceremony, it just doesn't cut it. You can wash your hands and you can wash your hands, but it doesn't change who you are. But what Jesus does say, fill up the jars. I'm going to turn it to wine and we're going to have a good time here because I'm going to remake you to be in relationship to God the way you were supposed to be. Have you ever seen someone who's just, maybe their girlfriend just left them or they lost their job or some kind of difficulty has hit their life and and they're just in the dumps. I mean, their countenance is just low. They're like Eeyore. There's a cloud just hovering over them. (laughs) And you see them and it's just, hey, what's wrong? You know, snap out of it. Yeah, I don't know. And then all of a sudden they connect to something. They meet another girl. They get another job. They get a job that they really like or or they start doing something or maybe they get in a band. I mean, it could be anything, but something connects to them and all of a sudden their countenance changes. They get up. They're excited. You know, they meet a girl and then all of a sudden they're dressing nice. They're taking baths and... Doing things that they didn't do before. Why? Because there's an excitement there. There's a life there. There's a willingness that comes because there's a desire change in their heart. I want to go to work. Why? I love this job. Man, it's great. Or I love my class at school. I never said that ever. But some people do. Some people do. I, I wish I would have. I'd like to go back. But when I was in school, it was like, really? Anyway... I give too much information. Hold it back, Sam. Hold it. So you get to a place where something connects to you and you're alive. And you see, when you're alive, you don't have to worry about, well, I have to make sure I don't do this. No, I'm already connected to this. You see, when you're in love with someone, you don't have to worry about cheating on them. Why? Because you're in love with them. If you're not in love with them, then, yeah, there's problems because... You will devote yourself to what you love. Well, what happens when God gets a hold of your heart and and 
changes the water to wine and gives you a life that all of a sudden it's like, I am really alive. And then pretty soon you find yourself reading a Bible and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm becoming one of these. I thought that. I remember at a lunch break, I was reading this little small New Testament and I just, someone walked in and I was like, I must be the strangest person. I'm reading a Bible on my lunch break. Who does that? But I wanted to. And it freaked me out. It really did. It was like, what's going on? The water turned to wine, Sam. God is working in your heart. He wants you. Quit washing your hands. Quit trying to get clean enough. Quit trying to do all these things. God wants to fill your life with his joy. That kind of joy. Miles kind of joy. And that's the first of the signs which he revealed his glory because what Jesus is going to do is get rid of the old and bring in the new. And the disciples said, oh wow, something's going on here. I don't know if they fully knew it, but John is writing years after. And he's looking back and he's saying, I remember that first miracle. Man, that was crazy. Oh my gosh. You know what that was about? He was removing the ceremony and bringing in life. Oh my gosh, the light bulb went on, bing, I get it. And now he's writing it for us so that we can get it. And so here he is dealing with these things. Now, let me see if I answered any of the questions. The ceremonial jars, I answered that. Why the wedding, it was a festivity. It, it could be mean more, but we know it was a time of celebration. I, I'm cool with that. You know, if we want to connect it to more, we have to try to. Um, does Mary know the plan? She seems to know something. She seems to be knowing what's going on. Why fill the water? Again, I think he was trying to make a statement, and I think he wanted it to the full because that was also a statement. This was going to be more than enough. Um, and that conversation with Mary, you know, my time has not yet come. I think we've talked about that too. But maybe I've caused some other questions now. I do that. Any other questions in this passage that maybe you didn't have before that don't make sense what I said now? Usually that he would have someone who is responsible for establishing that um, those things. They would be like a not a best man, but someone would be responsible for those things. So, But the bridegroom is responsible for that person. And so it's his family that's responsible. And the reason he goes up to him is he's just congratulating him that whoever put this together did a great job. You, you've got the right person. Everything went well. And so it's not necessarily that he was responsible for that, but he was responsible for the person who was responsible. The family was responsible. That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think sometimes something will come into our minds and our thoughts is like, I, I think this is something I need to do. And we don't realize it, but we're having a conversation with God. And in other words, God's saying, Sam, 
I really want you to grow in this area. I, I really, I have this for you. And all of a sudden it's like, man, that sounds really good. And then I, I would have a dialogue with myself. Well, I don't know if I want to be committed to that. And then I'd have an answer back. Well, you know, it seems like a good thing. And who am I talking to? You know, I mean, I'm having this dialogue and it's almost like God is already speaking to me and now it's a matter of me, am I going to respond or not? And I don't know when the line crosses or, or that it has to be a line, but there there comes a point when we say, I want to hear this voice more. I want this life more. And, and we make an internal decision that I want what God has for me. I I really long for more of this. And when we make that decision to want more of this and say, you know what, God, I want more of you. I I want the life that you have for me. Then God says, cool. And God's right there to start doing the transformation within us. And he takes the old and makes it new. Call it a you know, new creation, born again, conversion. We can call it a lot of things. But what it is is a, a surrendering of my future to the future that I want with God. You know, and it's kind of connecting into that life. And I think a lot of times it happens before we even realize it happens. You know, it's like, I think I'm already doing that. And then it's almost frightening sometimes because it's like, wait, I didn't say I wanted to do this, but I find myself already doing it. And then you have to stop and why, why am I doing this? And it's like, well, God's talking to you and he's pulling this out of you. And so you are growing into the person that God wants you to be, but you have to choose to want that life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> well, if it's a little bit, I'm, I'm good. Hopefully it can become more. Um, What Jesus does is changes the essence of who we are. Just like water had to become wine, or just like even a grape has to ferment and become the wine, it has to change. There's some change that takes place. I did an experiment when I was in high school, and I made wine. It was terrible. Um, But it, it was to show the fermentation and the change that took place. Well, God does that to us. He makes us of a different essence. We're still who we are. We still have the same thoughts. We still have, you know, I still love Italian food too much. You know, I still want, you know, like the same kind of music. I I still have these same things. He doesn't change who we are, but the essence of who we are becomes a little bit different and resembles a little bit more of him. And that's an important process that takes place. And it's not always black and white. You know, in Acts chapter 10, I think it is, Cornelius is this uh, Roman uh, centurion. He he oversees men. And then Peter comes over to him because God gives Cornelius a vision. And then Cornelius is talking to Peter. And while Peter's talking to Cornelius, all of a sudden he's filled with the spirit. And it's like, wait a second, what happened here? Well, he was on this journey. And then all of a sudden it just seemed to become who he was. And so it was a real clear transformation. 
but how it happened wasn't just like, Cornelius, do you want to raise your hand and say a prayer? Yes, I do. I accept Jesus now. Okay, now spirit fall upon Cornelius. Okay, say, repeat after me, you know, whatever happened. It, it just happened because it was already happening. And so the transformation that God does, I think sometimes is like that, you know, fermentation process. All of a sudden it becomes something different. And when it becomes something different, well, when I said I wanted something different, and then I slowly started yielding to that. And you see, I believe you can be someone different and still act like an old person that you used to be. I know that since I've been a follower of Christ, there's a lot of times where I've gone back and I kind of acted like that person. But my essence is still connected to who I am with God. I just keep stumbling or getting, you know, muddy or whatever you want to call it. Anyway... Don't know if that makes any sense. Yes, Cody. Well, some of them did. Remember, they said, "Hey, we found the one Moses talked about when he talked about to Nathaniel. Hey, it's the one Moses talked about." And then, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so, some of them had this idea. But it's interesting because you see this happen more and more, or often. It's like they believe, and then they're not sure, and then they believe, and then they're not sure, and then they really believe, and then Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter, you cheated. God didn't, you know, God told you that. You didn't think of that yourself. And so I think this belief process is the same thing. It kind of germinates and grows and becomes more. I don't think they had any idea the full extent of what was happening here. They just knew this guy just made water into wine. That's, that's pretty cool. I don't know if they said that, but they thought, you know, this is a trick. They probably didn't say that either, but they, you know, something happened. They just, okay, they they believed. You know, they said, and it was through which he revealed his glory. It It was through each of these things that he does, you get a clearer picture of who he is, the substance of who he is. The weight of who he is. Every time he's doing one of these signs, these miraculous things, they're getting a little bit more clarity to the substance of who he really is. And it's showing up. Any other questions? Nada? Yes, Tim. No, they had a few more there. I think there was five of them at this point. Oh, I don't... I, it doesn't... It just says... You know, John said that. Yeah, John said, behold the Lamb of God, and then they followed Jesus, but then they went and called their brothers, and then they got Nathaniel. So there's about five of them right here that we know of that have been mentioned so far. To some extent, to what, again, it wasn't until the resurrection that they fully understood. So their whole idea of the Messiah is still a little, you know, iffy. It's still a little disconnected to what was taking place here. You know, and the the power of this sign wasn't fully understood probably till after. When John looked back and says, oh, all these things make so much sense now. You know, he would say, three days I'm going to rise. And they're like, okay, what does that mean? You know, they didn't fully understand. And then they remembered, oh, he meant his body. Yeah, I mean, he and he's going to go back and connect them to those things, the suffering, and then they, especially Matthew does that a lot, connects to the Old Testament. Tim, you had your hand up? 
Well, who's, who do you think showed faith in this story? Yeah, the one who actually took the water and served it. You know, take the water and give it to the guy. What? Okay, and then she said, do whatever he says, so I'm going to do it. And so they take it and they serve it to him and it's wine. Okay, the person with real faith is the one who did and acted on the things that Jesus said. His disciples believed, and we're going to see that word believe throughout this gospel. They started to believe in him and what he was doing. But the ones who actually demonstrated faith were actually the servants who took the water to the... Not Lazarus. He's dead. There's a few times where the faith is not a part of the connection of the miracle. And it's important to understand that. You know, it's not, well, if you have enough faith, the miracle will happen. You know, and you sit there like you're constipated, you know, to try and muster up, you know. And I blame you, Michael, for that word. Um, And so you can't muster up faith and make it happen. You know, it is acting on the things that you hope for. You know, but um, it does. It's not what produces the miracle. You know, God is the one. You have faith in something. Okay. Well, let's pray we're, And if you want to still talk and ask questions, I'm here. God, thank you for just what is a powerful entrance, and yet so subtle, and yet that is so like you to do something so amazing and so profound, but to do it in such a way that requires thought and inquiry. And you pull us in to look closely. And then the closer we look, the more beauty we see, not only in what you're able to do, but in how you're able to do things. Lord, you show up at a house party. It's out of the way. It's with common people. And you do something that is miraculous, but only a few people know. But you are speaking and you are declaring and making a difference, revealing yourself and the substance of who you are through it all, but doing it so beautifully. And so gently, I'm just so intrigued and just overwhelmed with who you are. And I pray that voice would continue to, to speak to our hearts, Lord, that we would continue to ask those questions, that we would continue to want the life that you have made us to live, the life that is connected to you. And whatever that looks like, may we not stop until we are close to you. Thank you again for this time. Bless us as we go home in our time here, we ask. In your name, Jesus. Amen.